The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're continuing our study this morning of 1 Thessalonians. If you can remember back to the first chapter... Paul thanked God for the body of believers. He says, because among other reasons, they were an example to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and because their testimony had literally echoed across the country. This is an amazing church. If you're looking for a church to go to, this would be a good one. You you really don't want to go to Corinth. They got some issues at Corinth. All right, stay away from Corinth. But if you want to go to a good church, this would be one. But As amazing as it was in Thessalonica, they're not perfect. There is no perfect church. And if there is, don't go there, because you'll ruin it. (laughs) Okay? Now, even though local churches can be far from perfect, I think believers really need to be involved in them, because I think we need the protection, we need the edification that God designed to occur through the local church. We are part of the family of God. And we really need each other, not just in a general sense, but in that atmosphere of coming together to worship, to, to praise God together, to learn together. Now, we finished up last time with verse 11, which concluded the section on eschatology. So this morning, we're not going to talk about eschatology for a brief moment, okay? We're going to be looking at a section that begins in verse 12 and runs all the way through verse 22, It's really a long series of commands, one command after another, to the local church, all right? And so this section is very practical in the life of the local church. He's telling them, this is what you're supposed to do. And the first thing he addresses is local church leadership. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Now, over you in the Lord here is, or over you, is from the Greek word proistemi, And it means to stand before someone, or to preside, or to lead, or to direct. So it's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, three different times, verse 4, 5, and 12, of the elders of the church. It's used again in 5.17 in reference to church leaders. And it means to be in charge. It means to have authority. So verses 12 and 13 show the local church's responsibility toward its leaders. Now, I've got to be <clears throat> transparent with you here. These texts like these are hard for me, okay? Because I'm standing here telling you how to treat me. <laughs> I mean, it just feels self-serving. I'm going to deal with the text, okay? And I'd ask you to be a Berean and go to the text and see if what I'm saying is so. But, and that's, to me, one of the advantages of verse by verse. Okay, I didn't pick these out today to yell at you because you're not treating me right. Uh, That's not the issue here. Okay, these are the verses we come to, and so that's what we're going to deal with this morning. Now, notice what Paul says in Titus 1.5. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, here we're told that the organization of the Cretan church was unfinished, because of the brevity of Paul's visit. He wasn't there that long. So Paul left Titus 
on the island of Crete to correct the situation. He says, put what remained in order. So this church was not in order. And the way he is to make it orderly is to appoint elders, he says, in every town. That's what they were due to put the church. That's what Titus was to do. In other words, a church is not in order. It's not functioning as God intended it without the appointed leadership according to the guidelines of Scripture. So let's look at what the Scriptures have to say about church leadership. We're not going to look at the church for that because you wouldn't get any idea what leadership is supposed to be like. So let's just look at the Scriptures. There are four terms used in the New Testament to describe church leaders. And none of them is reverend. Okay? That is one of the worst things you could call a, a pastor, a minister, an elder. That word is only found once in the King James Version of the Bible. In Psalm 111.9 it says, He sent redemption unto His people. He hath commanded His covenant forever. Holy and reverend is His name. It is only Yahweh that is holy and reverent. The Hebrew word for reverend here is Yahweh, and it means to fear, morally to revere, cause to frighten, be afraid. Clearly, only Yahweh is to be reverent. And in holding the reverence of God, we exercise godly fear, knowing that of who He is, knowing of His absolute power and His greatness. And that's certainly not an attribute of an under-shepherd who pastors a local congregation of believers. The reverence this word speaks of is revered for Yahweh alone. I think it's clear that to use the term reverence sends the wrong message as to what God's leader in a local church is to be. Only Yahweh is to be revered. I think terminology is important. You know, we need to learn to use the right terms to speak of the right things. It drives me crazy when someone calls a church auditorium a sanctuary. It's a building, it's a room, that's all it is. We are the sanctuary. We're the dwelling place of God. That's important. God doesn't dwell in that church over there in this one room in the center. That's the sanctuary. No, I'm the sanctuary. You're the sanctuary. We're the dwelling place of God. We have to get our thinking biblical. All right, there are four terms used in the New Testament to describe church leaders. Not almost reverend, so let's look at the ones there are. There's bishop, elder, pastor, and leader. The most widely used New Testament designation for a church leader is what? Which one of those four is the most widely used? Now let me tell you to let me tell them to you again. Bishop, elder, pastor, leader. Okay, pastor, that's that that's the the farthest other end. That's the least used in the New Testament. <laughs> Elder. Elder is from the Greek word presbuteros. It's used 72 times in the New Testament. It refers to mature in age, wisdom. Presbuteros is used 20 times in Acts and in the epistles in reference to leaders in the church. This is the most common New Testament term for a church leader. It's probably the least known among people. It's the most common in the New Testament. Secondly, we have the term bishop, which is from the Greek episkopos. It means guardian, overseer. 
It's used five times in the New Testament, once of Christ in 1 Peter 2.25, and four other times to refer to church leaders. It's always plural. Hang on to that thought. Third, leader. This is from the Greek word hegeomai, which according to Thayer means to lead, to go before, to be a leader, to rule, to command. It's only used of church leaders one time. It's only found in Hebrews 13.7 of church leaders. So you don't hear too much use of that one. The other three are pretty prominent, and we'll talk more about those. Uh, Hebrews 13.7 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Only time that word is used. And finally, we have the word pastor, poimain. This is only found one time in the New Testament. Okay, and that's in Ephesians 4.11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that's poimain, and teachers. The normal meaning of the word poimain is shepherd. It means to protect, to feed, to care for, and to lead. Now, what we have to understand here, this is the least used term in the New Testament. It's the most used term in the church, okay? Um, Pastors are not distinct from bishops or elders or leaders. All three of these, all four of these terms are used at the same people. There's no distinction there. They're just different terms used for church leaders. They all identify the same people. And I want to show you that by the textual evidence that indicates that all these terms refer to the same office. Let's look at 1 Peter first. 1 Peter 5, 1-5. He says, So I exhort the elders, presbuteros, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, poimain, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, presbuteros, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge of you, but being examples to the flock. Hang on to that thought. This is an important aspect of what the church leaders are to be doing. They're to be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders... Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word elders is presbuteros, the word shepherd, poimino, and the word oversight here is episcopeo. Paul instructs the elders to be good shepherds as they overseer the flock. All three terms referring to the same person. We see the same thing in the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts 20. Now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church to come to him. All right, Paul's in Miletus. He calls for the elders of the church to come meet with him. What I want you to notice here is the word elders is plural, and the word church is singular. There are plural elders in a church. Each church had a plurality of elders. He goes on in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Okay? This is overseer here, episkopos, care here, poimino. 
Paul is addressing the elders from verse 17. And we see the same three Greek words to describe those who lead in the church. Elders emphasize who the man is. Bishop and pastor speak of what he does. Look at Titus. Titus 1, 5 through 7. This is why I sent you to Crete. This is why I left you at Crete. So that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now. An elder has to be the husband of one wife. What does that tell you about woman leadership? Well, maybe not much in our culture because they have to be men. Okay? A woman cannot be the husband of one wife. I know our culture today is trying to mess this up bad, but no. Okay? The elders are to be men. It is men who God has appointed to serve in the church. It is men who God has appointed to lead in the home. Now, whether women like it, whether anybody likes it, that doesn't matter. This, this is what the Bible says. It's not, I don't think this is cultural that God just wanted men to lead back then and now it's a free-for-all. I don't believe that, okay? If well, I lost you so far, I'm sorry, all right? But this is, this is what the Bible says. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So here again, we have elders, we have overseers. Titus was an apostolic representative. He was told to appoint elders, and then Paul gives the qualifications of the elders. We see then in verse 7, he says, the overseer, which is the Greek word episkopos. The elder is to be a good overseer. Now, according to the New Testament, the leadership or pastoral oversight of the local church is to be shared by all men in the church or any man in the church who qualify and desire the work. Church leadership is to be a team effort. Every place in the New Testament where the term presbuteros is used, it is plural, except when John and Peter use it to speak about themselves. They call themselves an elder, singular, because they're not a whole bunch of elders, they're one person, okay? The norm of the New Testament church was a plurality of elders. There's no reference in all the New Testament to a one-pastor congregation, And today's tradition of a single pastor leading a church is not the biblical norm. It is a violation of the scriptural pattern. But that's just, most churches are bishoprics where you have one man ruling over, all right? They might call themselves congregational. You know, the congregation gets to vote on things, but the pastor's still running the show. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else, okay? Okay. When you have a plurality of elders running things, it's a Presbyterian form of government. When there's a board and a group of elders who govern and oversee the church. Now, the problem is that pride and selfishness plague much of the Lord's work, just like it does in every area of life. And the world's concept of power, honor, and authority and leadership permeate the churches. Shared leadership And humble servanthood is the biblical form of leadership rather than one-man leadership. Eldership, I think, enhances brotherly love, humility, mutuality, and loving interdependence. Okay, now that we know who the leaders are, 
What are the duties of elders? What are they supposed to be doing? Well, there are several listed in Scripture. I think the main duty of the elder pastor is to shepherd the flock of God. And shepherding boils down to two things. Feeding and leading. Feeding them the Word of God and leading them by a godly example. Notice what Peter tells the elders to do. In 1 Peter 5, 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So he is to shepherd them. They are to exercise the oversight. This is the same thing he said to the Ephesian elders. Be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Again, we have the overseers here. We have the word pastor again, or point main, overseer pastor. Um, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Now, Paul could mean here, you elders, pay careful attention to each other's needs and weaknesses and faults. In other words, watch out for each other, help each other. Or it could mean, elders, each of you pay careful attention to your own heart, your doctrine, your behavior. I'm sure he means both. They're to care for themselves. They're to watch over their lives. They're to watch over each other. He's warning them to be a good example to the flock. Talking to Timothy who was an elder in Ephesus, Paul writes this, keep a close watch on yourself. Okay, you know, pay attention, Timothy, to your life. And on the teaching. So you're to watch your life, you're to watch what you're teaching. He says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's talking about saving himself from damage of sin, saving himself from false teaching, They'll, he'll save himself and the congregation if he sets a good example and teaches the truth. So an elder, first and foremost, has to be on guard of his own spiritual life. He can't shepherd. <coughs> excuse me. He can't shepherd the flock if his life is a mess. Okay. Richard Baxter, the reformed pastor, said this: An unholy pastor is like a stained glass window. He's just a religious figure that keeps the light out. And people, that is so true. But I know so many men in ministry who have fallen to sexual sin. And a lot of it is just due to pride. You know, they're a single man leading this group, and especially if the church grows and they think they are something, then they can think they can do whatever they want, and sooner or later, and I've seen it happen over and over and over, okay? Paul guarded his own life with extreme diligence, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body, he says. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You have to do this. You have to you know, protect your life. I thank God for the man who discipled me because he beat into my head. Don't ever be alone with a woman that's not your wife. Don't drive a babysitter home by yourself. Don't ever counsel a woman by herself. Don't ever, and I mean, I can't tell you how he drove that into my head. I got so sick of hearing it, but I'll tell you, it made a difference in my life. 
And I won't be alone with another woman for any reason, you know, and then I don't have to worry, okay? You're not going to get in trouble if you protect what you do. Because, you know, and I know a lot of guys who think they can do that. But the Bible says, let him who thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. So people who think I got this, then end up in trouble. Paul didn't want to be disqualified from ministry. So he disciplined himself. And his life was an example to all. And he told Timothy to be an example. In 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Be an example, Timothy, in the way you speak, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. Timothy is at Ephesus here. And Paul tells him to be an example, which is basically what he is saying to these elders when he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. They're not only to guard themselves, but he says to all the flock. And then he tells them to shepherd. Now notice the sheep symbolism that Paul used here. He says, care for, and again, this is poimeno, which is shepherd. Again, I love the ESV, but this again is a bad translation. Care for. Young says this, to feed the assembly of God. That's different to me, and at least in my mind, feeding them and caring for them, okay, care would involve feeding, but I just don't think it, I think Young's nails it there, and that's why it's always good to have a Young's with you when you're reading, when you're studying, to get an accurate translation. The flock were the sheep, and the elders were the shepherds of the flock, who were appointed by the Holy Spirit to protect and to feed the sheep. Now, the danger was to come from the wolves, he said, who would savagely destroy the flock and devour some of the sheep. In Jeremiah 13, 17, and in Zechariah 10, 3, God calls Israel the Lord's flock. And in John 10, Yeshua is called the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, hang on to that, the idea that Yeshua is saying he's the shepherd. All right, we'll talk about that in a second. As good under-shepherds, the elders are to guard the flock of God against all dangers and spiritual well-being. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, it's not the elders that appoint other elders. It's not their self-election. They don't, you know, run a campaign and get elected. It's not by human ordination. They're made elders by divine appointment. He says, it's the Holy Spirit who made you overseers. Now, the question is, how? How does the Holy Spirit appoint someone to an elder? Well, I think that when the apostles were around and the apostolic delegates, they appointed elders, those who were in that position, they would appoint them, all right? Point elders, he tells Timothy. That was, I mean, Titus. That was his, he was an apostolic delegate. So they could appoint him. And their appointment was the Holy Spirit's appointment. But once the apostles died off, how does the Holy Spirit appoint elders today? Well, I think 1 Timothy tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 and 2, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And he lists the qualifications here. So I see from this text two ways that the Holy Spirit appoints elders. First, he plants a desire in their heart for the work. The Greek word for aspire here 
is oregomai, and it means to reach out after, to long for, to covet, to desire. In other words, this person desires to shepherd, to minister to the flock. Secondly, the man has to fit the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. So it's not that elders appoint elders. Elders recognize those whom the Holy Spirit has appointed and who had already begun to function in that capacity. And that's the idea. You see someone, they're in a church, and they're functioning in that capacity. They're ministering to others. They're caring for the flock. They're trying to teach the flock. If they have a desire for that, then you meet with the other elders. Then you get the people to find out, okay, what do you know about this man? Is he qualified to be an elder? He tells them to care for the church of God. That's their test. Shepherd the church. And shepherd here, again, is from the Greek word poimeno. It means to shepherd. Now, to understand what shepherd means, look at a conversation that Yeshua has with Peter. I think this is pretty fundamental to this whole discussion. John 21, 15 through 17. When he had finished breakfast, Yeshua said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Who are the these here? I think it's the fish. I don't know. Maybe it's the other people. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. If you love me, here's what I want you to do. Feed my lambs. So he says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? So he says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So Yeshua says to him, feed my sheep. All right. So in this text, three times, Yeshua says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. One of these times, the middle time here, he uses poimeno, to shepherd. But the first and the third time, he uses the word bosco, not poimeno. And the verb bosco is used both literally and figuratively for feeding animals, providing nourishment, while the verb poimeno includes shepherding duties toward the flock, such as guiding, guarding, ruling, whether literally or figuratively. Now, a quote from the Jewish historian Philo employs both these verbs. Philo says, those who feed, and he uses the word bosco, supply nourishment. So, bosco is feeding, but those who tend, poimeno, have the power of rule. So, we we see the difference here. Now, from what Yeshua says to Peter, I think we see that the primary responsibility of the shepherd is to feed the flock. Teach them the scriptures. This is the church leader's whether they call them elder, overseer, leader, pastor, this is their primary responsibility to teach the Word of God. This is what Yeshua called Peter to do. This is what Paul did. This is what Paul called the Ephesian elders to do. Feed the church of God. Now in Ezekiel 34, we have a divine rebuke of the shepherds of Israel because they've forsaken their task and their calling as shepherds. And they began to feed themselves from the flock rather than feeding the flock. So in Ezekiel 34, 2, he says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, 
even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Their job was to take care of that flock, to feed the flock, but they're not doing it. So Yahweh goes on in this text to rebuke the shepherds of Israel for the fact that his flock had been scattered and was being devoured. He says, As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not my sheep. Then the Lord promises, for thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Now, who's the good shepherd? Who's the good shepherd? Yeshua. Who's talking here? Yahweh, okay? Keep that in mind, okay? Yahweh's saying, I, I myself, I'm going to search for the sheep. I'm going to seek them. And then in Luke, Yeshua says, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. He goes on in Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16. I myself, he says, will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. So no doubt, Yahweh's talking. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong, I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. So Yahweh promises Israel, He's going to seek the lost, He's going to be their shepherd, and this was fulfilled in Christ, who was Yahweh in the flesh. And that's why you get to the New Testament, He says, I've come to seek and save the lost. And people who knew Ezekiel went, wait a minute, Yahweh said that? He's claiming to be Yahweh. And yet so many people today are lost on this. Well, he's not, he, if he's not God, you're dead in your sins. Okay? John 8, 24. The flock that these elders are to feed, he says, is the church of God. So this flock doesn't belong to the shepherd. It belongs to the Father. Okay? It's his church. And then he says this, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, whose church is it? It's the church of God, which he, which God, purchased with his own blood. So, what does that mean? I thought Christ died for the church. He did. So, he's God, because that's what it's saying right there. It's the church of God. Okay? Listen, people, if you know your Bible, this is everywhere in Scripture. Because it's fundamentally important to understand. Yeshua is Yahweh in the flesh. John 1, 1. He says, which he obtained with his own blood. The word obtained here is not the common word for to buy in the sense of buying a slave out of the slave market. This is the Greek word peripoiaomai, and it means to get for one's own self. And the force of this word is, I have made these things my own. By his blood. He's made us his own. The flock was purchased with his own blood. These sheep were so valuable to God that he purchased them with the precious blood of his son. So let me say again that I think shepherd, shepherding can be boiled down to feed and lead. Teach the word of God, live out a godly example. 
The Puritans, they sparked a renewal in large part through their commitment. The Puritans had a strong commitment to preaching. You're going to hang on. This is a radical idea. Preaching as the pastor's primary task. Yeah, that's what they thought. Isn't that crazy? J.I. Packer states, To the Puritan, faithful preaching was the basic ingredient in faithful pastoring. John Owen wrote, The first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. This feeding is of the essence of the office of the pastor. So the main duty of elders is to shepherd, which means feed and lead. Let me ask you something, believers. How often do you see this happening in churches? How many churches are teaching the Bible? The church today seems way more interested in entertaining the sheep than feeding the sheep. And you know why that is? Because the sheep would rather be entertained than fed. And so if you want to have a lot of sheep, do what the sheep want. Give the sheep what they want if your idea is to have a lot of sheep. Now, if you do what God wants, not a whole lot of people are on board. They're like, I don't need all that. I don't want to have to think. You know, I want to go to the church and just hear about how, how much God loves me, how much He wants me healthy and wealthy, wants me to have no problems. That's what I want to hear. If I'm not getting entertained, I'll go somewhere else. There is entertaining me, okay? So the church has really, really forsook it's calling to teach the Word of God. I mean, when people leave here, when they move out of the area, I hear back from people, they say, I can't find a church anywhere that teaches the Bible. It's just a really rare thing today, which I don't know how this happened, but it's sad. It's really sad. I mean, pastors today are more equipped in marketing and a lot of other things than they are in actually dealing with the text of the Word of God. Okay, with that as the background, let's look at our text, Okay. <laughs> We're just going to deal with these two verses, but I had to give you some background. Okay, now we know who the leadership are. Now we know what the leadership are supposed to do. And now these two verses are to you. Okay, these are to the congregation. This is how you are to respond to the church leaders. He says, we ask you. The verb here, eratao. And this is an interesting word because eratao is a request from a friend. In verse 14, he says, Parakaleo, I urge you. So this is more gentle, more, hey, look, help me out here, will you? <laughs> it's a request from a friend, all right? Eratao, we ask you, brothers. You know, this is, and it, we, we read over this word because we see it so much. The word here is Adelphos. It's used by Paul usually when he, when he transitions to a new subject. He'll say, brothers, and then he'll transition. Not always, but many times. Um, plural pronouns as this one are often generic and they refer to the entire class. So he's not just saying men here. It's brothers and sisters, fellow believers. The point here, the root of Adelphos is from the same womb. In other words, we're family. And that's what he, that's what he's, it's an intimate term here. Family of God, listen. He says, well, here's what I want. I want you to respect those who labor among you. He's talking here about local church leaders. Respect is a present infinitive of the verb oikaios, to know, to acknowledge, to recognize. Now, some see oikaios here to mean appreciate value. I want you to appreciate those who labor among you. But this idea is found in the next verse. 
about appreciating. So I think it's kind of redundant to have it here. But also Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, when he calls for the church to recognize the leadership of those of the house of Stephanos because they're the first converts. He says, now I urge you, brothers, to know, and that's our same word, okay, know that the house of Stephanos were the first converts. In other words, I want you to know who they are. I want you to acknowledge. I want you to recognize them. And that fits here in Corinthians, and it also fits with our text. The Greek verb probably means that they were to recognize certain men among them as legitimate leaders of the church. Now, why is he telling them to recognize their leaders? They don't know who their leaders are? Well, remember, this church had only been in existence at this point for several months. These weren't Christians that, you know, they got mad at their church, so they moved over to this church. These are people who didn't know anything about Christ. They're, at the best, two months old in the Lord. Okay? Two months old. They're all new converts. And yet God had raised up leaders among them. Maybe Paul sent Timothy back there. Maybe Timothy, when he was there, he set some elders up. Paul might have done it when he was there. We don't know. All right? Paul did that in the church of Galatia. It says this in Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders, again, these people are brand new Christians. For them in every church with prayer and fasting and committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Again, elders is plural, church is singular. These leaders that Paul and Barnabas appointed were fairly new to the Christian experience. They were the most, but they were the most spiritually mature among that church. And many of these, <clears throat> many of these leaders, I think, that they're appointing in the early church, I think they are probably former elders of the synagogue who had trusted Christ. They come to faith in Christ. And so they're appointing them as leaders. Now, I think this is what probably most likely is going on in Thessalonica. These leaders in Thessalonica that he's telling them to appreciate, to know, were probably elders of the synagogue. And they had a solid background in the Hebrew Bible. And they come to faith in Christ, realizing, hey, the Scriptures talk about this is the Messiah. So they trust the Messiah. So it makes sense to put these men in leadership. Now, the synagogue had elders, and I think the church was probably patterned after that to start with. Okay, So they took these elders, they had the leaders there. It makes sense to have these guys. These guys have a background in Scripture. The Gentiles wouldn't have known anything about the Hebrew Scriptures. <clears throat> and the, the church is born out of this. So it makes sense to have these leaders. But there's a problem with that, because having Jews in leadership in a mostly Gentile church would have caused problems. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. They hated each other. Okay? The Jews would not eat with the Gentile. Gentiles were defiled. The Jews didn't like, I mean, the Gentiles didn't like the Jews. So this is probably why Paul says, listen, I want you to recognize your leaders. I know they're Jews, but they got a background in the Hebrew Scriptures. They understand a lot more than you do. Just recognize them as leaders. We'll talk about this when he gets to the very end. He says, be at peace among yourselves. I think he's saying, you guys need to learn to get along, all right? So they're told to recognize those who labor among you. Labor here, kapiao. And kapiao means to become weary, tired, to work hard, toil with effort, strive. 
It may be described both a mental and a physical kind of labor. And Paul uses this word frequently to describe his own ministry. And he says these leaders here are to be recognized not by their title, but by their service. Recognize those who labor among you. They're they're toiling. They're laboring among you. Recognize them. Well, how are these leaders to labor among the Thessalonian believers? I think this is spelled out, at least in part, by the following description. He says, and are over you in the Lord. Well, we talked about this earlier, but this over you here is proisteme. It means to stand before someone, to preside, to lead, to direct. Herodias and Plato use this word proisteme to refer to leadership in an army, leadership in a state, and leadership in a party. It's used in 1 Timothy 3, three times to speak of elders. It's used in 1 Timothy 5, 17, where Paul says, let the elder who, let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So it includes responsibility for management or oversight of all aspects of the local church. Leaders are to rec- be recognized as those over the congregation in the sense of ruling and providing headship as a shepherd is over the sheep. People, this describes a clear and legitimate order of authority. God put these men over the local assembly because every group needs leadership. (coughs) Excuse me. The final phrase here, in the Lord, certainly can't be overlooked. The oversider leadership finds its authority, its example, its nature in the sphere of the Lord himself, who is the great, the chief shepherd. The leadership of the church is never to be like that of the world where leaders many times exercise a dominating leadership with a desire for status. I mean, I could tell you some horror stories of church leadership and things they've done to the congregation, you know, bondage they put them under, things they put them through. When Kathy and I were younger Christians, we had a pastor tell another couple that we were close friends with they couldn't hang around with us anymore because we had left the church. And so therefore, because we didn't go to that church, they weren't allowed to associate with us. That's kind of sick, I think. Joke's on him. We're still friends with those people. All right. Leadership in the New Testament church, whether in the home or in the local assembly, is to be that of a servant who seeks to care for the needs of the flock. Look at what Luke 22, 24 through 26 says. A dispute arose among them to which of them should be regarded as the greatest. That's a great argument, right? They're walking along with the Lord and they're arguing about, who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. They sound like all like they're Muhammad Ali, right? I'm the greatest. No. It's ridiculous. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So leadership in the church is servant leadership. Paul tells us that one of the responsibilities of these leaders is to admonish you. This is from the Greek nuthatheo, which means to lead someone away from a false path into a true path through warning and teaching. The verb suggests the idea of confronting believers with the error of their way of life 
through the Word of God. In other words, you see a believer straying in there, go to them, look, the path you're going down is not right. It's not biblical. It's going to cost you. This is the way you should go, using Scripture, not your opinion. Paul uses the same word in verse 14 where he says, admonish the unruly. And that's directed to the congregation. So that's a responsibility the congregation has. They're also to admonish. Paul's the only person in the New Testament to use this word. He said to the Ephesian elders, therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you. So Paul had admonished the elders. He had given them direction from the Word of God on the path to take. He admonished them. And Paul also says that this is a responsibility of all believers in Romans 15, 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Admonish, same word there. It's the task of every church member, but it is especially the task of the elders. Elders, remember, are an example to what everybody else should do. That's the only reason God gives the elders these special example, uh, special qualifications, because that's what He wants from the whole church. And the elders are to be example of the church to follow. So here He's saying, and I want to point out here, that He tells them, you yourselves are full of goodness, you're filled with knowledge, and therefore you're able, because you have the knowledge of the Word of God. You're full of goodness. You, you have the knowledge to come along, and it helps somebody on the path. We don't see this happening too much anymore. You know, every, we've gotten to be so individualistic that, you know, you mind your business and I'll mind my business. Well, if you're part of the body of Christ, you're my business, okay? And we're to be involved in helping one another. But we're so afraid that would make somebody mad. Well, maybe it will, but if it helps them, that's what needs to happen. Right, he goes on in verse 13, he says, And esteem them very highly in love because of their work, now be at peace among yourselves. All right, esteem here is the verb hegeomai. It means to respect or esteem. Now hang on to this. But the word never appears with this sense in biblical literature. Okay? And this meaning is even extremely rare in the wider body of Greek literature. This verb normally signifies to think or to consider. So he's saying... I want you to think, I want you to consider them, the church leaders, very highly in love. And I think that's most likely what he's saying here, to think about, to consider them. And then he says, very highly. And this is the adverb, huperperectino. Okay, I want you to remember that word, that's an important word, okay. Huperperectino, it's a compound word made up of to extend inordinately, to stretch beyond, it means to extend beyond the prescribed bounds, to stretch out beyond measure, stretch out over much. You get the point? Huperperectino literally means go beyond all things in an inexhaustible way. And then he uses the adverb in, uh, in Colossians, he uses the adverb, Huper ekana, in Colossians 3.20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. So whatever you can imagine, Yahweh can go way beyond that. I think his power is unlimited. We understand that, right? 
So the combination here of the verb esteem, to think, to consider, with the verb very highly, gives the sense that the Thessalonians should think about the leaders in the highest possible way and hold them to the highest regard in love. These words carry such an emphasis in the Greek that it's really hard to express it in English. Because in the Greek, it's just listen. Very highly is just a strong, strong word. Esteem them beyond what you can even imagine in love. Why? Because of their work. Because of their work. He tells the congregation this profound loyalty to their leaders is because of what they're doing, not their position, not their office. You know, too often when leaders are esteemed, it's for the wrong reason. They don't deserve esteem because of their title or because of their personality, but because of their labor on behalf of the people of God. So Paul says that the church should hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And their work is overseeing, guarding, teaching, shepherding those whom Christ bought with His own blood. Notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Again, this emphasis on preaching and teaching. Now, double honor here refers to respect and financial remuneration. But the double honor is to go to those who labor in preaching and in teaching. And people, let me just, from my own experience, to do that job well is hard work. Okay? If you're going to take the word, the greatest stress in my life is not from people in the church, not from problems in the church. The greatest stress in my life is from the text. Because every Monday it starts all over again, and i got to figure out what do these next verses have to say. I got to try to take them apart, look at the Greek, look at the culture, and try to figure out what do these mean and how can I apply this? What do I got to say? And that's, it can be very stressful because sometimes it is difficult. All right? And I'm pulling my hair out and I'm, you know, frustrated. And a lot of times I won't answer the phone, I won't answer a text because I'm in the midst of trying to figure something out and I can't, you know, I can't stop. I'm on a, my train's rolling, I don't want to derail. All right? So it's hard work unless. You buy canned sermons. You know, you can purchase today a 10-week series on how to love your wife, or a 10-week series on, you know, leadership in the church, or a 10-week series on giving, you know, something like that. And they'll send you the package, have the verses, have the illustrations, every the prayer, the whole, you don't need to do anything. Just look over it so you're ready for Sunday morning, okay? And that goes on way more than you'd think. Several years ago, I was at the car lot, and two of the guys that were talking about, oh, we had a good service yesterday, the pastor talked about this. And they guy looked at me and goes, my pastor talked about that same thing. And I'm like, what? He goes, no, you're, are you kidding me? And they start going back and forth, and he, and he says, my pastor used this illustration. He goes, and the other guy looked kind of whitish, you know, he goes, my pastor used that same illustration. And I'm standing there laughing, and they go, what's so funny? I go, you guys don't get it, do you? And they go, what? I said, those are canned sermons. They bought it. That's why they're saying the same thing. They're going through the same series at the same time because they're connected with one of these bigger churches that tells you how to grow a church. Here's all the material you need. And they're like, no. that." And I said, guys. <laughs> and they continued to compare notes. And they're like, they were exact same messages. I'm like, isn't that something? You can just buy the canned sermon. Okay? 
And they're not all that great either, okay? It's more illustration and you know all that stuff than actually dealing with the Word of God. People, to interpret the text requires hours of labor. It requires discipline. It just does, okay? It's not that easy, all right? So Paul ends this verse saying this, Be at peace among yourselves. This is a present active imperative. This is a continual command for believers. This is really common. It's a common New Testament appeal. Be at peace among yourselves. That's what what the Lord wants in the church. And this call to peace is rooted in the teaching of Yeshua in Mark 9.50. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. That's what God wants in the church, not division, not hatred, not fighting. There's to be peace. But I think the insertion of the call for peace here just may be due to the fact that the newly appointed leaders in the church are Jews. Remember, this early church, one of the big problems they had was the Jew-Gentile problem. And he's saying, listen, you guys, here's what's important. Be at peace among yourself. I think this call to peace here may be the same as what we see in Romans 13. Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. People, let me tell you something. This has nothing to do with civil government. Okay? Nothing to do with it. I've done several messages on this. You can go look them up on our website. If you want to get into this, go through this. We go through this whole thing in Romans 13. He's not telling you, obey those leaders who don't pay any attention to the Constitution at all. You obey them. That's nonsense. Okay? The law of this land is what? The Constitution. Anybody creates a law that violates that is violating the Constitution, is null and void. Our document that we follow is the Constitution. And they put out so much garbage that is against that, but nobody even knows what the Constitution says. Probably the majority of Americans have never read it, never even looked at it. We need to be familiar with it because that's our document. That's what this country goes by. All right? And this verse has nothing to do with with government. It's talking about authorities in the church, authorities in the synagogue. That's really important. Okay? Because, again, he's, he's telling him in this church, you guys got to get along. And again, usually these leaders would have been from the synagogue because they had this background. They know the Hebrew Scriptures. And the whole New Testament is built on those Scriptures. So they're a big advantage as leaders in the early church. They know these things. They can teach these Gentiles about what God's going to do. They can sit down with them and go through the Feast of the Lord. Let me show you. Let me show you what's going to happen in the church here. Let me show you what goes on. Let's look at the feast. God has told us years ago the program and how he's going to carry out the program of redemption. So much advantage, but again, a lot of tension. So he's telling him, listen, I don't want you to stir up dissension in the body by complaining about these leaders, by arguing with them. Listen, just submit to them, get along with them, esteem them very, very highly in love for their work's sake. It's an important work. So esteem them for that. Believers, we are to seek peace in the church. Now, I know there's going to be times of conflict because if someone's coming around with false doctrine, that has to be dealt with. Okay? But a lot of times, church conflicts over really stupid stuff. Church is split over the, oh, the call to the carpet in the auditorium, you know? Oh, I don't like that call. Oh, my word. Really? Does that matter to anybody? I mean, obviously it does. But we're to seek peace. And so where it doesn't involve false doctrine, where it doesn't involve sin, 
we're to get along with one another because we're called to be at peace. And when the church functions that way, we'll be like the church in Thessalonica that Paul just spoke so highly about. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. This message felt a little self-serving to me, Lord, but I'm just dealing with the text, and I thank you for giving me the grace to do it. I pray, Lord, that you would stir up the hearts of your people, that they would be as Bereans, Lord, they would search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. Father, I thank you for setting up a church to be a place where believers can gather, to be comforted, to be consoled, to be taught, to be together with other people of like-minded faith. Thank you, Father, for your provision for us here and now through local assemblies. We love you, Lord. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> questions, comments? I'll tell you this a bit. Your admonition to never be alone with a woman could work both ways. Uh, women, young women, should never be alone with a man either. Well, well yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, well, that's the thing. If you protect your environment, you don't get in trouble. It's people that don't protect their environment, they don't think it's a big deal, and then they end up in trouble. And unfortunately, you don't have to do anything wrong. No, you don't. And especially today, in today's age, you can be accused of things you never did. Yeah. So it's, you know, I mean, as a matter of fact, I was just told last week, we, we went to our former church, a church that we went to when we first moved to this area. And we were talking to some people that were friends of ours back then. And she was telling me about her dad had this ministry and they used to bring all these kids in and they had to stop it. Because these kids were so in love with their dad, they'd be crawling all over him, and he just was afraid of it. You know, this is not right. Someone's going to say something, and, you know, so he, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. He had to stop that, but listen, let women minister to women. Missionary dating is a bad idea, okay? It's just a bad idea, all right? <laughs> let women minister to women, guys minister to guys, all right? <laughs> Doug says this, I hope, brother, Joel Osteen sees this sermon and then has recurring dreams about it. God bless the BBC. I don't know that Joel watches me. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not really sure. <laughs> Anthony. Anthony says, "I believe that what he was saying was to greet each other with a kiss on the cheek, Pastor, not the lips." <laughs> the text doesn't say Anthony. Okay, you're adding to the text. All right. <laughs> I'm just, let's just stick with a hug. We'll get to that text, all right? <laughs> we'll get to that text. All right, Norm writes, Only the great and incomprehensible Yahweh was able to truly die without ceasing to be. He did this in the magnificent Son, Yeshua, and He did it for us. Like Job, let us fall on our knees and worship him. Amen. Amen. He, he is who he is, and man, we just need to realize that. All right, good morning, David. This is a long one. Um, 
from Gary and Chris and PA. My question is, as a believer and full preterist since 2012, we know that it's not just about eschatology, though we know that we believe in the fulfillment of AD 70, as you said, we are preterists in our eschatology and true Christians in our following Christ in the Bible. What do we do when we can't find a fellowship that is what we believe, like Berean Bible Church? Are we to be condemned or criticized from other Christians, quoting Hebrews 10.25? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And then it says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, the day of judgment, okay? That's what that text is talking about. He says... I believe that was written for, those, for that in those time, written because they were anticipating the coming of the Lord. That's right. Thanks. Well, listen, I, and I understand the problem. And I, and I think of that when I'm talking, because I know my large audience is not here. They're not in church. They're watching us because they can't find a church. I understand that. I mean, I don't think I could sit in a church. I don't think I could sing hymns about the Lord returning, you know, uh, that would just grieve me. Hear messages about the devil and the devil's supremacy over God and hear all about the Lord's coming. Uh, that would grieve me. But listen, I encourage people to try, if possible, to find a local assembly because it's so good for the brethren to dwell together in unity, to be with you know Christians that you can actually hug and, and kiss and be there with, okay? And share things with that. That is just... That's how God intended it, but I know it's not always possible. I mean, we've come to a place in our theology where we've studied ourselves out of the church for the most part, and the church is such a mess today that I can understand that's one of the reasons we do Berean life. So you can join us. It's not a local church for you. It's not the best thing, but it's the closest thing we have to offer, you know, and you can, we feel like you are our family. And that's one of the reasons for the conference, so we can get together and actually be with one another face-to-face and hug one another and love on one another. And, you know, it's frustrating to me. I know, but yet I know many preterists who have found local assemblies that they can get along with. And I'm thinking, there's so many churches out there. There's got to be some. Now, it would be a hard job to find it, but please, you know, and you don't have to go to it to figure it out. You can, you know, they have websites or call them, ask them a few questions, you know, try to find something that you can, and I know a lot of preterists that are involved in local assemblies, you know, and they get along fine, and the pastors know they're preterists, and they still get along, you know, they don't stir things up, they don't cause trouble, you know, I don't want you standing up in the middle of the service saying, you know, Yeshua returned in 87, no, you know, get along, okay? If you have an opportunity to speak, yeah, then speak. But, you know, don't cause trouble. Okay, uh, this is uh, from Matt in Connecticut. He said, I didn't get a chance to ask this question last week from 1 Thessalonians 5.10. When Paul says that whether we wake or sleep, we will live together with the Lord. I was wondering, how can that mean whether we are alert or not alert? we will live together with the Lord when he just finished telling them to be alert. Does it really matter all that much? Also, does this not connect what Jesus says when he tells his disciples to be ready for the Son of Man and that would happen so they are happen to those who are not? Yeah, well, because, Matt, when he says whether you... I'm telling you to be alert. 
All right? Because if you're not prepared, you're going to get caught off guard by this judgment. All right? And so you better be alert. But whether you are alert or not alert, you're still going to dwell with me if you're mine. Listen, people, that is, that's unchangeable. When you come to Christ by faith, you're brought into the family of God. There's no exit from that. There's just no exit. Christ died for you. You are accepted in the beloved Ephesians 1, 6. You are as close to God as if you are Christ because you're in union with Him. We share as believers all He is and all He has. And you have as much chance of losing your salvation as Christ does being kicked out of the Trinity. It's not going to happen. So he's telling those believers, because if he was using the idea of sleep being dead, I think he would have used the same word that he used in chapter 4. It's weird to you know, try to keep the same idea but switch Greek words. That, that just doesn't really work. So that's the best I can do for you there, Matt. Wow, all these questions are long. Based on the requirements mentioned in Scripture, should an elder step down from his position of leadership who has a child living in rebellion? I think that idea there, that's a good question, okay? But I think that idea is he has to be able to control his house, all right? We have no, no control over whether our kids are saved or not saved, okay? If you believe in election, okay, and this is one of my main struggles with election. I was like, what if my kids aren't elect? And I had to realize, do I trust my God more or my kids more to do the right thing? So I had to trust God, you know. So the idea is not that your kids have to be saved, but they have to be under control. They have to be not unruly. In other words, he knows how to take care of his household. All right? It doesn't seem fair that someone would be limited in their capacity to minister because of someone else's lack of obedience. I agree, okay? But if they're young children, it's the parent's job to have them in Authority, okay? That's the idea. And who decides what degree of rebellion a child should be? Well, yeah, again, again, I, I think, you know, and that's, the qualifications there are laid out because that's what God wants. He wants to set an example. But again, you have no control over who's saved and who's not saved. You do have control how, over how your children behave. And believe me, uh, Kathy's father used to call that the tails wagging the dog. Because most kids nowadays, they run the household. I mean, little kids. They're telling the parents what to do. And they're just, you know. And I think, you know, when you have young children, I don't think they should be shuffled off to Sunday school. I think they should sit in church. But most people would not come to church in that case because their kids would just tear the place apart. They wouldn't sit still. They just wouldn't because they're not trained to do that. I remember sitting in church and this family had five or six kids, and those kids would sit there in church and not budge, and not. And if one of them got fussy, they'd pick them up, put them on their lap, put their hand over their mouth, and say, you be quiet. Those kids, or the mother would lean forward and look down the row, and those kids would about die. <laughs> she was a whomping, stomping mama, but they behaved in church. They're spo- our kids are supposed to be, you know, now when they get to be adults, you have no control, okay? Believe me. that's a good question from colorado springs colorado i feel as though i want to teach and i have before but sin makes me feel like i have no place teaching but i think that's a lie within myself no man is perfect i understand do you feel not worthy at all times but push through (laughs) 
Uh, Sean, let me tell you the truth here. Look, I hate saying that because I want to always tell the truth. Uh, let me be frank. No, I always want to be honest. Let me be transparent. How's that? Let me be transparent. Many, many times I don't feel qualified to do what I do. Most of the time I don't. I'll tell you the thing that gets, keeps me going is the church as a whole. I see how messed up it is and I say, I'm not the best thing they got going, but at least I'm trying to teach the Bible, okay? And so, yes, nobody is perfect, okay? But we are called to do this, and, and we, you know, we're trying to overcome and be the best we can be and do the best we can do. So, yeah, it's, no, there's no one perfect. There's no one, you know, who's going to do it all, all the best, but you try to keep the motives pure. I, let me tell you, my last church, before I came here, I was on staff at a church that blew up numbers-wise. And I saw the pastor's head blow up with it, okay? I mean, because when you all of a sudden, man, there's thousands of people there, and they're all, you're the greatest thing in the world, you know? And, you know, he ended up in adultery with a church secretary. Because, you know, he's, he, hey, I'm king, I can do whatever I want here, you know? And he was booted out of the ministry. Thank the Lord. The church sought to kick him out. But, you know, sad situation. As a preterist congregation, do you sing worship songs and hymns that refer to the second coming as future? No, we don't. I change words. Okay? <laughs> when, when there's a hymn that we like and it talks about that, we either change the words. Um, like we do... We do uh, Steve Green's song, uh, In Christ Alone. Go look at In Christ Alone and then look how we do it, and you'll see that there's some altering of words. And that's not sacrilegious, okay? Those, that's not the Bible. I can change the words. We make them, you know, fit because I think singing is important. I think people learn more through music. I can just about tell you the words from every song from the 70s. How do I know all those? My wife's like, how do you know those words? And I'm like... Just, they're in my head from singing it. And so that's, that's singing, you learn more, and if you're learning false doctrine through singing, that's wrong. Just as wrong as false teaching is wrong. So it's important that we use correct. I heard the local church is not to meet in separate buildings, but only at, at the home of one of that local groups. Your thoughts? Uh, you know, the early church met in a home, and I think home churches are the biblical pattern. But the churches did come together. Those local churches did come together because Paul told the Corinthians, when you come together to take the Lord's Supper. And I'll tell you, personally, the way I look at this assembly is like a home church. I mean, we're a small group. We know each other. We get along with each other. We actually like each other, okay? It's a small group. It's like a home church. We're not meeting in a home. We rented a storefront and we meet there. So, huh? Yeah, the rest of you all are at home, I guess. Is, if you're watching, you're at your home church. But uh, <laughs> thank you for feeding and laboring for God's sheep. Thank you. I, thank you. I appreciate that. Again, I, I love it. I love digging in the text and trying to figure out what does this mean. And sometimes it's so exciting. It's so thrilling because you discover stuff you never knew before. And other times you're like, oh, man, what do I do with this? You know, and it's just it's frustrating. But. Most of the time, I really enjoy it. And then I enjoy telling you what I learned, you know. 
so yeah, it's for the most part, it's I love it. And again, I feel very unqualified to do what I do. I really do. And every week, I'm like, Lord, I'm I'm I spend a lot of time in prayer because Lord, and I'm always amazed at the end of the week that how where'd this come from? <laughs> you know, how did I do this? I, I'm seriously, I, I'm just like that's pretty amazing. And now after doing this for 35 years, I feel like okay, I got a hang of, you know, I know the Lord's going to work somehow in this. Someone says, oh, John says, very helpful message. Thank you. Does it seem reasonable to have a gifted female pastor on board to counsel the female part of the flock? Is there a more biblical alternative? Yes. Uh, I don't think, I don't think women can be pastors. Okay. I think that's a biblical teaching, but yeah, well, elder pastor, same thing. Okay. But I think that in that text in first Timothy, it allows for a woman deacon, okay? And I think you're going to have women in the church who are qualified to teach women. But a woman's not to teach or usurp authority over a man. That's, you know, and people say, well, that's culture. No, he takes it back to Adam, okay? So that's not cultural, okay? Because Eve was the one deceived, okay? That's what he says. So you can't say it's cultural, all right? It's just how it is, you know? Again, it, it's God. He can just lay out any rules that he wants to lo- rule. But yes, I think it's helpful to have women there who can counsel the women, who can help the women. Because, like I said, or a pastor does that with his wife with him. And I do that a lot. If we're counseling somebody, I, you know, and it's a woman, we get my wife involved. And we both talk to them. You know, it's just you've got to, you got to be careful. But yes, you want someone within the church that women can go to, women can talk to, they don't feel comfortable talking to a man about some things. You want that so they can do that. And that's, that's important. And hopefully you have those women at the church. Uh, Gary says, thank you. We watch every week and want to support you. We love you. <laughs> Thanks, Gary and Chris. Appreciate that. Um, man, it's, you know, having all you people out there is really cool. You know, it just is. I just... I enjoy it, you know, I think we got a small group here, I think there's 13 people here today, you know, when you work hard all week and you're like, okay, is anybody going to come, I know y'all will be out there, and that's encouraging, and I appreciate that, and I, I don't think I could just do this at home, because I like being with the people, you know, I like actually talking to real people, you people, <laughs> and you people, I know you people are real people, but you're not here real people, so... Really enjoy it. Thanks for the privilege of, you know, allowing me to be able to do this. Uh, My mom wants to know if you do the Lord's Supper. Yes, we were doing it every week. We just changed that recently. But once once a month, we do the Lord's Supper. And I know a lot of preterists say, oh, the Lord's Supper, you're supposed to do this till he comes. That's not what the text says. Go back and read the text. But we do it because we want to. You got that? It's an area of Christian liberty. Okay? If it was for them, I don't care. It's beneficial to us. And the Bible doesn't say, once the Lord comes, don't you ever do this again. Okay? So we do it, and it's a reminder of us that the Lord died for us. It's a picture of that sacrifice. It's a time to reflect on that. So that's an important time for us. But, you know, you can kind of criticize us for doing that. But like I said, it's an area of Christian liberty. And we have a right to do it, and we enjoy it, so we do it. We don't feel like we're commanded to do it. We don't feel like we have to do it. Kim says, thanks, David, for all you do. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you 
being with us for so many years. Kim's been on board from the beginning, man. Just about. Kim Hover, yeah. Been on, been on board from the beginning. Uh, this, is, this must be, it says mass text. I think this is from Marchesa. We are so thankful that you're not a canned preacher. <laughs> Appreciate your words dug from the treasure of Yahweh's word to admonish and encourage. Blessing and hugs. Yeah, it's Marchesa. She signed it. I guess I should have started at the bottom. Thanks, Marchesa. I appreciate that. Again, I appreciate you all being a part of this ministry, joining with us. It's, uh, <clears throat> it was a huge change, a huge turning point for me when we got in the building and started broadcasting. You know, because prior to this, we're meeting at the Y in a huge gymnasium with a handful of people. And psychologically, it just messed with my head. You know, I'm, I'm in this huge place with these little handful of people. And, you know, and then we get here and we start broadcasting. Of course, it's a smaller room, and so it doesn't look as empty, you know. And then we start broadcasting. So I said, okay, I know there's other people out there. And the very first day we met here, they broadcasted. They put a computer up and turned it backwards. So the, <laughs> and no one knew it, but they told a few people. So a few people were watching us. But, yeah, the broadcast has been just a tremendous blessing to, you know, have so many people join with us from all around the place. Just, thank you, Garrett. Yeah, thanks, Garrett. Garrett made that possible. He pushed me. That's true. That's true. My, once I do a message, they do get canned because I know of at least three pastors, one in the country, two out of the country, that have told me, I use your mess, I preach your message. One guy I tuned in to watch, and I'm like, because I saw the title, and I said, that, I recognize that title, and, and, and he just preached my notes, you know, and he, you know, I, he called me and asked permission. I'm like, listen, everything we do is for the body. It's free. You don't, there's no copyright on anything we do. You can use anything we do. Do whatever you want. We found a, Jeff and I found a website that has all my messages on it. The only thing they did was they took off Brian Bible Church and they took my name off. And they have every single message, same title, same everything. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care because it doesn't matter. You know, if the word of God's getting out, my name doesn't have to be on it. You know, man, I cry every time I hear that song on a Christian radio. I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. That's what it's about, you know. And so whoever uses it, use it. If, it, if it's helpful, if it's beneficial, use it for the glory of God. All right, let's wrap this up. You guys come up here and let's sing. Let's close with a song. Thanks, folks. Appreciate you being with us. Have a great week. Wait a minute. I got another question. Let me see. Too late. Oh, Jeff says too late. While you're coming up here, let me see. Okay, this is a good question, so let me deal with it before you can sit down. <laughs> Not you, you stay there. All right, someone says, uh, I don't know who this is from, but they say, great sermon. How should the following verse be understood with respect to the post-transition church called out ones? Thanks. And he, he quotes here Hebrews 8.11. It says that they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Okay. What that verse is saying is within the church, I don't need to go to Bob and say, Bob, you need to know the Lord. Why? He knows the Lord. Okay, I don't need to go to you and say, know the Lord. 
In the Old Covenant, that was not so. In the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant is like, a, take a cross-section of a peach. Cut a peach in half, you got the meat and you got the pit. Okay, the pit were the believers, the believing remnant in Israel. And the believing remnant had to keep going to their brothers and sisters, know the Lord, know the Lord, because they were in the covenant externally, but they didn't know the Lord. In the new covenant, the cross-section is like a potato. Cut it through, it's all believers. So those within the covenant don't, go to, don't need to go to teach each other to know the Lord because we all know Him from the least to the greatest. If you're in the new covenant, you're a believer and you don't need to be taught to come to the Lord. Let's stand together and sing, Come to Yeshua.